Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Yeah, and this is one of the great things about being a scientist in the biological sciences today is that it's, it's so easy to take new techniques and technologies to really advance uh, relatively obscure species, at least in terms of, you know, research, and bring it up a couple of notches and then make that much more available to other researchers as well. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about biotechnology and how it can be used to create sustainable solutions for people and a planet. I'm Kevin Fulda, and today we're going to talk about another area of plant breeding and plant domestication, plant genetic improvement. And we go all the way to Homestead, Florida, to the University of Florida's Tropical Research and Education Center, and we're speaking with Dr. Alan Chambers. And Dr. Chambers, well, that sounds pretty good. How are you doing, Alan? I'm doing fabulously well. Thanks, Kevin. <laughs> yeah, you've been Dr. Chambers for a while, though. When did you leave this place? Uh, so I graduated in 2013. R- really? That long ago? Five years? That's right. Anybody who knows the publication record knows that Alan was a student in my laboratory because he uh, published all the papers for a long time. <laughs> and and uh, so he's landed actually at the University of Florida uh, working in, the, in my department. Um, actually, after a stint with industry for a while, that was a lot of fun or no? It was, no, it was a great opportunity. Learned a lot of skills, um, but ultimately when an opportunity came for tropical fruit genetics and breeding, it's pretty much exactly where I wanted to be. So it was a good opportunity. Yeah. And it's nice to have you aboard. It's fun to see you every once in a while and, um, you know, and still keep in touch on things. And, and that's really what I wanted to talk about today because one aspect of your program, which has many, many tentacles, one aspect was this work on vanilla. It was, seems like kind of an interesting crop and an interesting issue, but it really comes about because of uh, the current situation that's happening that really is quite an opportunity. So what I'd like to talk about today is, you know, what is this thing and how do we make it better? What are you up to? So what is vanilla? Uh, so vanilla is an orchid. Um, it's the only edible orchid. Um, so it, it's actually the, also the only that is a, a vining orchid. So it grows up a, a tree or a bush or whatever it can get its, its uh, little roots on. And the vine itself does produce flowers. And then those flowers will give us a vanilla bean. And it's from those beans that we eventually are able to extract uh, the vanilla flavor that people around the world know and love. And you mentioned around the world, where is vanilla usually produced? So the majority of vanilla from vanilla orchids is produced in Madagascar. Anywhere between 70 to 80% is what we read. Um, And so that's the major area. So all the major players uh, are getting their vanilla from Madagascar. But there are other significant players from Uganda to Indonesia uh, to Mexico and other players who want to get into the vanilla industry. Yes. Yeah, so people getting into the industry and 
that seems to be a, a function of economics because you have 80% of production in one place and you can imagine some of the bottlenecks and problems that can create and opportunities for others. But if you could give me a back of the envelope um, idea of why there's a vanilla problem, what's happening with this vanilla shortage? Yeah, so and these the vanilla problems are, are somewhat cyclical. Um, as, you, as you said, with 80% of the production, Focus in one area, one significant uh, weather event, cyclone or hurricane, uh, can significantly decrease supply, right? So that increases uh, demand and then prices rise. Um, but also one of the reinforcing challenges is that once prices go extremely high, we also have an increase in theft. And so we have growers who are trying to provide for their families and for themselves. And they're left with this decision. Do we harvest the beans early at a lower quality that leads to increased waste? Or do we allow others to steal the, the beans and we get nothing? And so as a result of both the uh, environmental challenges as well as some I know, community challenges, we see these cyclical increases in vanilla prices. And so what are we looking at now for the price of vanilla beans? So usually at the top of these vanilla prices, uh, which is where we are right now, we're looking around $600 per kilogram of the cured beans. For a while, it was actually trading higher than the price of silver, uh, pound per pound. Well, that's pretty impressive. So what exactly is being produced and, and why is that so attractive? Like what is the uh, flavor composition? We, I mean, we know it's vanilla, but... Like what is happening with the chemistry there that provides the compounds that people are interested in as a flavor? Yeah, so one of the analogies I like to think about is if you've, you've seen a grape soda, but I don't think anyone would accuse the grape soda of tasting like grape. So the main component of the vanilla extract is vanillin, um, and that is available through synthetic routes. So derived from petroleum products or as using waste products from the pulp paper industry. There are also um, biotech routes to getting towards uh, vanillin. But when you're extracting from the, uh, the vanilla bean, you get a sweet or a bouquet of different aromas and compounds. And you get a much richer flavor. And so instead of a single compound, you're getting a bouquet of 80, maybe 100 different compounds that are all impacting that overall flavor. And there are some people that definitely prefer that richness and depth as opposed to the more simplistic artificial vanilla flavor. Oh, that's pretty cool because I know the artificial extracts a lot cheaper, but are there people who really can tell the difference in say ice cream or something, if it was something that was synthesized from petroleum yeah. <laughs> versus something that was squeezed out of a bean? I think in a lot of applications, you can tell the difference. And so if you're in a background like a cookie that has a lot of different nuts or chocolate, a lot of sugar, it'll be harder to tell in that type of baked good the difference between an artificial and a natural vanilla. But if you have something more like an ice cream, something that can go through lower temperatures and it's a more simple uh, you know, food product, I believe you'll have a strong preference uh, because of the richness of that bouquet of aromas from the natural vanilla. And so, as I understand, you know, there, there's just not enough supply to meet the demand. You've talked about the high prices. Are we really at peak vanilla? So in, in terms of our production of vanilla, um, you know, there's 
in order to meet global demand for that compound, it would be probably disastrous for the amount of land that we would need using our current um, cultivation practices. So that's probably out of the question. And to me, it's also a question of what, where do you really want to put your money as a consumer? If you're looking for just the vanilla flavor, an artificial vanilla might work for you just fine. But if you are a grower in South Florida, for example, who's looking for a niche opportunity to provide for themselves, uh, then the, the orchid-based vanilla might be something very viable for them. But what about, we talked a little bit about the biotech solutions, and how are they doing this in microbes? Is it simply um, adding a couple components from the vanilla plant that can do a couple chemical conversions? And is it really just a question of... Uh, producing only vanillin or is there other things that can be produced that way that maybe can help fortify that idea of aroma yeah so the i mean in theory it's that simple that's what you know the research is trying to get towards where you've got you've got uh, microbes different yeast or bacteria you feed them some kind of substrate usually something extremely cheap and then through bioconversion they're going to take that um, to either glucovanillin or vanillin um, the challenge, though, is that the uh, increases in concentration of the vanillin can have antimicrobial properties, uh, which then is then poisoning the, the, the you know, microbial bioreactors making your flavor as well. So there are challenges uh, beyond just technological challenges. And, and what is a uh, plant use vanillin for? I mean, and they probably didn't make it for us to have better tasting ice cream, right? I mean, why, why do they have it? Now, that's a great question, and I'm sure it's an area of open research still with how little we know about vanilla in general. Um, but hypotheses could be anything as a type of protectant for this, the developing seeds, though glucovanillin isn't present until further on in the developmental process. Whereas the vanillin itself and these other aromas, they might attract um, you know, seed dispersers. It might attract some uh, creature or insect in these jungle systems that can help distribute the seeds across the jungle floor with a little bit of fertilizer as well. No, that's, that's probably pretty good. Sounds like an interesting ecological angle to the, to the presence of these things, because I don't think that plants necessarily made these compounds for us. Today's topic is vanilla, and we're talking with Dr. Alan Chambers, who's a professor at the University of Florida Tropical Research and Education Center in Homestead, Florida. Um, down south of Miami. And uh, we'll be back with the Talking Biotech podcast just after this break. Hey, everyone. This is Nick Syke from No Ideas Media. If you listen to this podcast, you're probably an awesome person who's probably found themselves in a debate or two about the validity of genetic engineering and its use in food production. You may have even noticed the same problem I've been picking up on. There's lots of good information out there about genetic engineering, but very few people who need to see it are exposed to it. Well, I'm making videos that lay people like myself can actually understand and digest. I'm a filmmaker, so this is my contribution to science communication. They are the perfect thing to post on the wall of that friend you have. You know, that person who just can't seem to grasp the awesomeness of GE crops, who maybe gets hung up on things like chemicals or Monsanto or whatever. The videos I make cover a wide variety of topics and you can watch them by searching No Ideas Media, remember that's no as in knowledge, on Facebook or YouTube. The videos will likely cover what you already know, but the point is, we gotta share them with people who don't know. The mission at No Ideas Media is to be pragmatic, not dramatic. So help us spread the right information about genetic engineering. Thanks a lot. 
And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast, today talking with Dr. Alan Chambers from the University of Florida's Tropical Research and Education Center, only six hours from campus, (laughs) or seven hours. Depending on traffic, yes. Yeah, I know it can take a while to get there, but um, what, what other things happen down at the Tropical Research and Education Center uh, in your program and other aspects of the center? So the center is, you know, primary mission is to support agriculture down here, uh, which is distinct from most of the other parts of not only Florida, but the country. So we have expertise in tropical fruit genetics and breeding from my lab. We also have uh, cucurbit breeding. We have horticultural support. We have entomologists. We have soils and hydrology. Um, And so across all of this, the objective is to meet our growers' needs as well as serve our community. Yeah, and it's it's really a a, a great place to visit. And one of the fun things about this time of year, at least in uh, where I am up in northern Florida, is we start seeing all the fruits and vegetables from down there. Um, Like right now we had avocados and mangoes and papayas just yesterday. So uh, from, from down there. So it's a delicious place to live. Yes, it is. (laughs) So let's talk more about vanilla. Where does this orchid naturally occur? I mean, can you talk a little bit about its natural history and maybe how humans domesticated it? Yeah, with the the caveat is I'm not sure we can, we can say we cultivate it, but whether we've domesticated vanilla is a open argument in my opinion. So there are around a hundred species, more or less of vanilla uh, globally distributed. The, those of economic importance, though, um, primarily vanilla planifolia, and we believe that species comes from south of Mexico, Central America, and it was that species that was then spread through you know, early trade routes uh, that became the vanilla, the commercial vanilla uh, that we know today. So you have raw materials in vanilla, like these hundred different species. Have people been making crosses and trying to genetically improve vanilla? You know, we don't see a lot of evidence for that. And one of the the great researchers in vanilla um, is quoted as saying that we believe we're still growing wild material for the most part. And so literally you have people going into a jungle system, pulling out plants, propagating those by cuttings, and it's descendants of those cuttings that we're growing now. And so in terms of real domestication, we still have some of those very basic challenges in vanilla, everything from seed shattering, um, as, as well as the fact we don't really understand the diversity of what's out there to know if, there's, if we were just lucky or if there's something even better that we could be growing that already exists. Well, it's the joys of working with an orphan crop. I mean, there's not that much information out there on vanilla. So what are some of the challenges just in starting a breeding program? One of the major challenges, of course, is that when we apply for different funding opportunities, uh, the justification is all economic. We have potential, but we don't have an existing industry to support. And so other industries are easily favorable to vanilla. Uh, the other challenge is, is we really need to go back to scratch for a number of the different tools and how we work with the plant can be challenging. So it's a lot of forward-looking strategy, uh, but there is a lot of opportunity. There's no reason biologically that we can't advance vanilla science using lessons from other crops, including other orphan species. So with uh, all these hundreds of vanilla species or hundred vanilla species, have people actually actively been making crosses and developing new varieties or cultivars? 
So we see very little evidence that there's been that type of human intervention in vanilla. What we believe happened is that original cuttings were taken from these jungle systems and then they were propagated by cuttings around the world and were growing those descendants still. And so there's been very little work in terms of, uh, you know, which species can be crossed and resulting in fertile species. At least there's been very little published if that work has been conducted. Yeah, that's really interesting. So what is your plan and what is your program seeking to do to remedy this bottleneck of uh, really just wild genetics and cultivation? Yeah, and this is one of the great things about being a scientist in the biological sciences today is that it's, it's so easy to take new techniques and technologies to really advance uh, relatively obscure species, at least in terms of you know research, and bring it up a couple of notches and then make that much more available to other researchers as well. So part of our work is to help us um, as a community understand the, the diversity of vanilla so we can really get a sense of on a, on, a, on a genome scale what's more closely related to other species as well as helping us to identify what species are out there from wild material to what's currently being cultivated. So earlier we talked about some of the drawbacks of production like theft people just stealing the beans that they could grab. But what are some of the other really uh, palpable problems with vanilla that you would like to solve as a plant breeder? Yeah, so as a, as a plant breeder, I look at vanilla as an, a wild species, more or less, and we start thinking about what traits would make it more profitable or economical to grow. So looking at things like yield uh, under different cultural practices, can we optimize the cultural practices? So different types of um, you know, mulches and sunlight, uh, everything from water and then even temperatures where you can grow this thing, which if there are different types of vanilla planifolia out there, which ones are the best? And then we can make recommendations for growing those ones. And are there other um, aspects of this? I mean, yield certainly is the big one, but is it a reasonably hardy vine that can survive pretty well? And you mentioned it takes a long time to get the flowering as well. Is it those, are those realistic opportunities perhaps for a breeding program? Yeah, well, so we see some great differences if, between the species that we believe are compatible. Um, and so we have uh, vanilla growing in hobbyist dooryards down here uh, that are extremely vigorous vines, very large, can grow over 40 feet tall don't produce a quality bean. So we believe that there's at least some traits out there for vigor. One of the most important traits uh, would have to do with the cost of production, where every single vanilla flower has to be pollinated in order to yield a bean, at least for the most part. And so that's extremely expensive. You have to have workers out there regularly scouting for flowers to pollinate them because the flowers are short-lived, only a couple of hours each morning. And that goes through a period of weeks, if not just a couple of months. And so our concept is, can we create a vanilla that can uh, pollinate, fertilize itself without manual intervention? And I think that using modern genetic tools, this is something that should be tractable as well. Yeah, I, I always think of the easy solution, make a robot. <laughs> you know, because, <laughs> I mean, that's, uh, you know, we're wrestling with a toolbox of genetics, of complicated genetics inside plants that uh, no one knows much about. And it's a lot easier, in my opinion, to go to that 
to go to uh, technologies. And if you had some sort of drone that could use either scent or visual signals to scout for the flowers and then fly in and, you know, and pollinate it like an artificial bee. <laughs> I don't know. So we actually have an introduced bee in South Florida. It's the, an orchid bee. It's a pretty shiny bee. It's got a nice green color to it. Now, we believe that this bee is responsible for natural pod set in vanillas in natural areas in South Florida. So one of the concepts we're interested in is can this bee be supported to uh, increase you know, pod set in a, you know, a commercial system by you know, supporting a home for the bee, making sure that it's protected from you know, insecticides, and the bee might do the job that uh, you know, hired laborer would need to do. And you mentioned the native species in Florida. Are, are there indeed types of vanillas that you could go use perhaps as a germplasm source? Well, so we have four native species in South Florida of vanilla. Um, whether they're useful or not is another question, something that we're interested in looking at. Um, one of them is a, a leafless type, and so very different than the commercial species. Uh, none of the species that are growing down here are known for their aroma, and so these are scentless species. But that doesn't mean that they couldn't possess something like a disease resistance or contribute to a metabolic profile that would give us unique flavor combinations in an aromatic vanilla. Yeah, and I've seen uh, some of your slides in your presentation. You've actually gone out and harvested these, right? I mean, you've actually uh, been out with alligators and everything else in the swamp finding a, finding a vine to bring home. Yeah, we, I didn't know about the alligators until we got out of the swamp, um, strangely enough. I should have known. Uh, but no, we've been working with park biologists in the south of the state um, on our conservation efforts. A lot of these native vanillas, uh, all of them are endangered and many of them are threatened. Very small um, preserve lands, very small areas. So a major event could be disastrous for these populations. And so part of our work is working with biologists to collect these specimens and then propagate them so we can maintain them here as well as reintroduce them. And then part of that is supporting our work to characterize these different species to see what use they might be for supporting an industry in Florida beyond their own merits as a, a native species. And you've been doing some work with the molecular side of this, so some biotechnology. And uh, are you working just on phylogenetic relationships, or are you actually starting to uncover uh, some of the genes that are associated with flavor production? Uh, we're doing all of the above, so a couple of steps at a time. So first working to understand genetic relationships between these species as we're waiting for plants to grow. Again, these are very small plants, so they haven't flowered and fruited yet. Um, and then as well, trying to figure out even just basic molecular techniques of how to extract DNA from these, how to help them to grow quickly. And then the next steps will include things like candidate gene identification. So understanding how genetics influence the quality of the, the bean or the extract, but that's a much more long-term proposition. Yeah, that's uh, pretty cool stuff. So you're, you're going at this from all different levels. Now, one of the questions that I would ask at the end, and I want to put at the end of every episode from now on, is how do we address the issues of sustainability? And you've mentioned some of these through the podcast, but as we know, sustainability has three legs. It's this social component and an economic component and uh, environmental component. 
And how is the work that you're doing in vanilla satisfying any one or maybe all of those different sustainability values? That's a great question. And we're all interested in sustainable solutions, especially because of our proximity to both a major urban area as well as to the Everglades. Um, So we're very conscientious about what we're applying in our groundwater. So here in South Florida, in terms of keeping our community active, um, our growers need a very a high-end product to make available to consumers. A vanilla is something that is going to give you a higher value per area for growing. Um, we're also, vanilla as a species doesn't necessarily require, at least in our understanding, as much of the inputs as some other species might take. And then long-term, we're also looking, of course, like I said, to develop vanillas that wouldn't require the number of inputs to maintain those plants to keep them healthy. And so if people wanted to learn more about what's happening in your lab or at Trek or, uh, you know, follow your progress, what would be the best place for them to look? So we are working on uh, developing EDIS documents that will be freely available online to um, put information out there in terms of growing vanilla, both for homeowners and uh, potential commercial industry. Um, otherwise, I'm, I have a small presence online. They can find me on my website. Uh, for anyone who's interested in, in talking vanilla, I'm always available. Okay, and I'll put that link on the Talking Biotech episode epi- uh, website. Well, Alan, thank you so much for spending the time with me today. It really is exciting opportunity to learn more about new crops for Florida and new opportunities for our growers and maybe something new for consumers. So thank you very much for joining joining us today. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Kevin. Yeah, it's fun. I miss talking to you. So it's kind of fun we could do it this way. (laughs) Yeah. And thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Write a review on iTunes or wherever you consume podcast media. Um, Share it with a friend. Invite more people to learn the stories about plants and other biology, medicine that's affected by biotechnology. As a much misunderstood topic, um, this is the kind of discussion that can help us uh, gain a little traction to bring good things for people and planet. I'm Kevin Fulta. Thank you very much. And we'll talk to you again next week. Mahalo. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review of this podcast on iTunes and recommend it to a friend. More downloads help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.